Hey, Media People podcast listeners, if you enjoy the podcast, then you're going to love our newsletter, appropriately named the Media People Newsletter. Delivered right to your inbox, each edition is a mix of original and curated content designed to feed your curiosity while aiding in personal development. On top of more podcasts, we'll connect you with articles, interviews, and industry events. Subscribe at mediapeople.ca forward slash newsletter or go to mediapeople.beehive.com. That's B-E-E-H-I-I-V. Thanks for listening to the Media People podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts, including youtube.com slash at mediapeoplepodcast. Views expressed by participants are personal. It's difficult to refute social media supremacy in the platform hierarchy. Brands are increasingly trying to find new and innovative ways to leverage social for audience engagement. And it's exactly why they turn to today's guest, Darcy McNeil. Darcy is the head of Soda, a full-service, specialized, and award-winning social-first agency. Darcy's career started behind the camera as a clearance coordinator. This involves securing commercial rights to content so it could be legally integrated into programming. Her work led to a series of producing jobs before she ultimately pivoted into content marketing, joining agencies like UM and getting the opportunity to start Mindshare Canada's Content Plus department. Darcy McNeil stops by to chat about growing up in suburban Toronto, playing ringette, why dance is such a big part of her life, how a pop culture history class at the University of Victoria got her thinking about a career in media and journalism, and running one of Canada's largest social digital media agencies. Soda is a full-service, specialized, and award-winning social-first agency offering strategy, community management, content production, analytics, social listening, talent and influencer integration. Um, leading this SODA agency, uh, I am overseeing the content production, the earned marketing opportunities, the revenue, the monetization, the ideation. So really full service, not only from an internal of our own and operated brands here at Chorus, but also helping our clients grow um, and monetizing our audiences. Darcy, that is a lot to unpack, and I'm looking forward to chatting today because it's been a while since uh, since you and I connected. I want to say it's definitely pre-pandemic. Yes, definitely. I think it was at Mindshare the last time um, that we last connected. That's right. I think it was one of your last campaigns before you made the jump to uh, Soda. Yes, exactly. Okay, so as always, we go back to the beginning. Where are you from? I am from, I grew up in Mississauga and then moved to Burlington, so West um, area uh, in, goodness, in grade I think it was grade eight. I moved to Burlington. All right. What elementary school did you go to then in Mississauga? In Mississauga, I went to Meadowvale Village. And then I also, so that was a K to six. And then I went to Dolphin um, Senior Public School in Streetsville. So yeah, you were always in Northeastern Mississauga or Northwest, yeah. Northwest, sorry. Northwest. Yeah, yeah, Northwest. And then we moved to Burlington when I was in grade eight. Okay. And you started high school in Burlington then? Yeah, or grade you- eight. Yeah, I mean, it was so funny because then you do grade eight in one year and then jump to high school. So it was a it was a vibe. Was that difficult kind of hitting the reboot button on your life as such a young person three times? Because like you said, grade seven is in Mississauga, then grade yeah. eight at a new school, new set of friends. And then did everyone from that from your eighth grade go to the same high school? They did. And I was lucky enough. I grew up, um, I had a friend named Heather who uh, went to the school in Mississauga with me that were family friends and she moved to Burlington. And so I went to all her birthday parties growing up. And so I had kind of built in friends. Um, so when I went to Burlington, I knew a couple of people already. So it was a little bit more turnkey. No, when I left elementary school, I went to the local public high school, didn't know anyone. So it was kind of like a big, yeah. hard reset for me. 
It is. And especially at that age when you're trying to find yourself and trying to find your people, that's a, that's a hard time. I'm still trying to find myself and my people. Yeah, me too. Me too. Same thing. <laughs> okay. You've had a number of interests and hobbies growing up. So I, I want to talk about all of them, but let's start first with Ringette because there are going to yes. be people listening to this call somewhere in the world wondering what Ringette is. Yes. And I only did, just to be clear, Ringette was only a three-year part of my career um, as a young child. Uh, but for me and my my parents and also my friendship groups, I was trying a bunch of different things. And a part of that was skating, getting into skating. I mean, I feel like that's a can Canadian thing. Um, and I tried ringette and it was super fun being a part of a team. Um, individual sports are very stressful for me. I, I like to be a part of a group. Uh, and it was super, super exciting. And I did it with one of my best friends, Whitney, growing up. And her dad was our coach. So it was pretty turnkey and super fun. It looks like you had a split between sports and the arts, but yes. would you say that dance was the one thing that stuck with you? Yes, dance definitely was. And it's funny when, you know, you kind of, everyone has that story of themselves as you grow up and you have these conversations like we're having right now, like, how did you end up where you are? And when I look back, it was the arts. It was around um, creating something and touching something and making other people feel um, what you're feeling. And part of kind of where I was landed when I look back, I loved producing talent shows. Like grade two lunch hour was inside in the gym, um, choreographing dance numbers for other people to do. And I was producing this in like grade two. Um, so it's of no surprise that I like to be behind the scenes and see all the magic up on stage. And you cite your dance teachers and your father as being yeah. your biggest influences. Let's start first with the dance teachers. So dance was an always on and again, like I spent so much time after school, weekends, competitive dancing. Um, and my mom also would bring me and my sister um, into all of the dance shows. We would drive to Toronto and be a part of that. And dance was disciplinary for me. It was um being really great at school, but then after hours was also um, creating a community, a team effort to put something together um, that took rigor and discipline. And having a dance teacher was my all my dancers were pretty strict, which I actually really gravitate towards. Um, I am a people pleaser, and I like to um, I like to perform and make sure and a high performer and make sure that. Everything that I do, I put my best effort forward. Um, and a part of that is motivating and finding those people who get that out of you. And tell us why your father is also my in that dad, group. Yeah, my dad um, is an entrepreneur. Um, he started um, in government and, you know, that doesn't sound entrepreneurial when you're public service, but took a chance alongside my mother, um, took a chance in starting his own business. And it was pretty fruitful. He uh, retired by age 40, 41. I was in grade two. He's 75 now. Um, didn't go back to work. Um, and that was, you know, having your parents at home in grade two and my sister was in grade four. He would take me to dance, basketball alongside my mother. And I just saw, you know, um, somebody who could step away from work, even though an entrepreneur and hardworking, but look to having kind of the joy of life, um, which includes golf with my mother, traveling with my mother, um, and enjoying hobbies and enjoying themselves. Should we really be surprised that your first job was a dance assistant? 
No, you should not be surprised by that. <laughs> Again, spending so much time at the um, in dance studios and being a part of, again, behind the scenes and choreographing and seeing other people perform and being so proud of that um, and seeing other people was kind of at the forefront. I never saw myself as candidly being the dancer or the person that, you know, was at the forefront. It was always making other people look great. Um, and that's where I get my self-esteem and motivation. Let's talk about your university career. So first things first, I'm kind of surprised you didn't pursue dance in university because I believe Ryerson and York University have both got pretty big dance programs or at least performing arts programs. Most definitely. So I did dance up until grade nine, grade 10 competitively. Um, And I moved because I was in Burlington and then Mississauga, then Burlington. um, I had to change a bunch of studios. You kind of lose that continuity of training going from dance studio to dance studio and I lost a little bit of that sparkle um, in high school and then got focused on basketball and other things so again I wasn't at the forefront of being the dance and performer I liked being behind the scenes of um, choreography and so it wasn't going to be the next step for me Um, I also knew and I you know maybe this is wild times and sharing this the arts you make no money it was going to be a struggle Um, And not that money is everything, but the focus on the arts, I felt like I could still have it in my life, but it would be on the side and something that would provide purpose in other areas. It is a feast or famine career. Like you're you're either living on someone's couch or maybe you're producing so you think you can dance and you're just throwing money into the river. Which is so funny because like my husband was a producer on So You Think You Can Dance. So uh, (laughs) it's just so funny, the full circle of it all. You graduated from the University of Toronto, but there was a bit of a detour. You started at the University of Victoria. So what made you want to go all the way out to the West Coast? So my aunt and uncle actually moved, who was very close to, moved out to Victoria when I was in grade three. And so every summer, my sister and I would go out there for two weeks um, and spend time. And my grandmother also lived out there. So I saw it as kind of a special place. I love water. I'm a cancer, um, the zodiac energy of it all. And I, you know, romanticized being away from home, like every rom-com movie, teen movie of like moving away. And I wanted to find myself. I wanted to establish myself without um, my friendship group. I wanted to, I wanted to a new identity in the sense of that, of what that is next for me and dream big. And so for me, that was university of Victoria. I had further away from my parents and my community and my always on people, but I had the comfort of having my aunt and uncle and my grandmother there. So there was a little bit of that. Were you studying English and literature at the university of Victoria? Like what was your major there? Uh, So funny. I went in with psychology. Oopsie doops. That lasted three months. (laughs) (laughs) Again, this was for me. I was like, that's what I want to do. I got there and I discovered rather quickly, um, you know, the sciences love them, but it is just not for me and what I gravitate towards. Um, I had to kind of look and understand storytelling, um, reading all of those fun things and hit in history as well. Uh, was better suited for me. Okay, so at the U Vic, it was a proper science, and not to say that psychology isn't, but I've heard no, that Canadian, I've heard that Canadian universities, some take the scientific approach to uh, the psych to psychology, and some take more of a social sciences approach to psychology. So no, this was full on science, and I was unsubscribed. <laughs> so what made you come back and go to the University of Toronto? 
first year was party city, as you can imagine, for, you know, university, you're finding yourself getting new friends, all those fun things that go along with that. Um, year two, it rained every day for about five months. Oh, exactly. And I am an empath. I am a, uh, I am emotional with the weather and all of those fun things that go along with it. And I was just not feeling myself. Uh, and like myself and my parents kind of knew that in the conversations I was having and I was very lucky because both of my parents um, were very open to me coming back it wasn't like you know a big massive pivot um, for them it was okay so where are you going to go next and so um, ultimately what had happened was we had to when you transfer universities you have to do interviews and so I interviewed both at U of T at Waterloo um, as well as Guelph and looking at those three different universities. And I decided to, um, and got transferred to U of T. What was the, what was the primary difference putting aside the rain between U of T and the university of Victoria? Like, was there an adjustment period for you? The only adjustment and going now to someone and going into grade or going to year three and year four at universities, everyone already made circles and friends. So it was a little bit, I commuted. So um, it was kind of felt like a little bit of work. I'll be honest. Like it felt like I was working a nine to five. I would go in and leave. So the culture of the community and knowing people in my year three and year four was kind of just school friends. And then you, everyone would leave. Uh, and it wasn't as much of live on campus and be all in, which to be honest, at that point in year three, year four, um, I kind of reconnected back with my friendship group in Burlington and other areas and into dance. I got back into um, teaching dance in year three and year four uh, on weekends and rediscovered kind of my love for it. Which college were you at at the University of Toronto? I was at the Mississauga. Okay, so at least you really saved yourself on the commute because I, I for, a minute, for a minute I was thinking, was she riding the train in from Burlington an hour and then taking the subway up to the to the St. George campus? No, it was the Mississauga campus. So it was a lot of people who all went to also, I mean, I think it's just a subject. Uh, I think it's just the way that the area is set up. A lot of people went to high school together too, right? So the cliques were already set up. And so it was a little bit like, who's this person entering year three? Um, which to be honest, I was fine with. Um, but yeah, it was people already had established social groups. After graduation, you went to Sheridan College and you pivoted into journalism. But this story actually starts a little bit earlier because it was your time at the University of Victoria where I think you were taking some electives in and around yes. in and around media. And that's kind of how you got the bug. So let's let's start first with going back to you, Vic. Why did you decide to pick media courses for your electives versus everyone I know took takes the basic astronomy course to bump up their average? It's so funny that you say that because there was like four courses at UVic that everyone's like, okay, take the child and youth care class, take the astrology class, take the anthropology class. And then the fourth one was the film school class. And I was like, oh, I'll do the film class. And I took a film class because a couple of my friends were taking it. And then there was another one of um, the history of pop culture. And that's kind of like where I found my people. Um, I never um, really thought having a job in entertainment was something and make money in the entertainment world was something that you could do. Um, I always thought of something frivolous and, you know, something that you do on your own time. Uh, and this was the first time with critical thinking and discovering that this is an area of business and where I could create a career from. Uh, and I just didn't have anyone to look up to from a mentorship standpoint or like my parents' friends didn't know anybody in this area. So it was kind of me discovering this all on my own. 
Okay, you said that there was a history of popular culture class yes. that you took. Yes. I took something in and around pop culture as well. I want to know what your experience was like in that class. Like, what did you guys study? So we talked about Britney Spears. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just to be clear, uh, we talked about Britney Spears. And we talked wait, about- Wait, wait, wait. She, she's history already? Oh, man. I know, I know. But it was like the history of the pop marketing star, which is such a, like, to go back to the psychology piece of it all- and talking about the marketing piece of a pop a pop culture icon from beginning to end. And I mean, at, there wasn't an end at that point. But it was, you know, discovering and rediscovering and putting a critical theory a, across pop culture, which I thought was so interesting um, and a different way of going at it. See, I had to write an essay in my pop culture course. I didn't have I picked this topic. I shouldn't say they said you this is the topic, but it was it was basically about G.I. Joe. And I was arguing that the bad guys, Cobra, in the 80s, specific characters were loosely based on cultures or ethnicities that the United States had been at war at through history. Oh, so there's some critical thinking. <laughs> and so critical thinking was just kind of like showing how this was like this sort of 80s propaganda, which, by the way, I don't think any of this stuff would fly nowadays. You and I were talking no, about no, that no, before no, we no, started no. recording, like how many things from our childhood just, nope, couldn't talk about it. No, would never immediately no. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so let's let's bring it full circle, hop over UT or hop over the University of Toronto and then just go back to Sheridan. So you graduate from the University of Toronto. And and where does this idea come from? You're like, you know, maybe my education needs a little bit more. Maybe you're just not ready to get a job just yet. Yeah, it was. Now what? Uh, My dad wanted me and with love and heart, there was two spots where he wanted me. He was like, go into insurance. You make money there. I was like, oh, love that for you. Um, Or he was like, or be a teacher. My sister was at that point going into teaching um, and having English and history. And also I was a dance teacher on the side and the mentorship piece. That's what I really found purpose in. Um, And so my dad was like, be a teacher. And I was not to say like teaching, love that for everyone. And I mean, I still kind of do it in my role leading a team of 85 people. But for me at that point, I was like, no teaching, I don't think is for me. And so I started to look up programs on my own um, and I knew I wanted to do more. And I remember going to my parents and saying how I wanted to do this new media journalism program. And my dad and my mom being like, really, this is what you want to do? There was major doubt um, from both my parents and surprise. Um, but you know, usually I am a, like I said, a people pleaser and I'm actually really, when I look back, I'm really proud of myself for advocating and, you know, kind of doing earmuffs of it all of not listening to my parents. Cause usually I would, uh, and you know, it was only an eight month program. So worst case scenario, I meet a bunch of people. I feel, you know, you see what you like, what you don't like. Um, and it wasn't a long-term commitment. We're going to take a quick break. Enjoying this episode? Of course you are, or you wouldn't have made it this far. Compliment your listening experience by subscribing to the Media People newsletter at mediapeople.ca forward slash newsletter or at mediapeople.beehive.com. It's a mix of original and curated content designed to feed your curiosity while aiding in personal development. On top of more podcasts, we'll connect you with articles, interviews, and industry events. Subscribe at mediapeople.ca forward slash newsletter or mediapeople.beehive.com. Let's talk about what you did after graduation, because your very first role in media seems pretty illustrious. You started as an intern on eTalk. So anyone listening to this who isn't familiar with eTalk, kind of give us the 101 on the show. Yeah. So eTalk is a news magazine program. At that time, I believe it still is. It's a 22-minute show um, where you have your, you know, your 
typical anchors speaking about the top news stories. You have your junkets, meaning your movie junkets of what the new theatrical movie is out. And, you know, talking about it's a promotion vehicle um, for everything entertainment. And, you know, this was so exciting. Like I graduated on the Friday of Sheridan College and started my eTalk internship on the Monday. Uh, and it was downtown Toronto. I didn't know anybody. Um, it was pretty intimidating, but I was so excited to um, to finally jump in. And so you were at the Bell Building or the Chum City Building at uh, John and Queen? No, we were at eTalk at that point was at the Masonic Temple. So it was in oh, uh, where MTV Canada was. Yes. So we were at the Masonic Temple and I want to share with everybody there are ghosts there. Um, it is true. I experienced some weird stuff when I was at the Masonic Temple. Well, well, give us a story. You can't leave us hanging like that. Yes, you're right. Um, Okay, so I, as an intern, was a keener. Again, people pleaser, if you'll see full circle. And so I would be there at like 8.30, and television producers and eTalk wouldn't really light up their their first meeting until 10 a.m. So I came in, and at the Masonic Temple, there was this thing called the Red Room, which were ceremonies used to happen with the Masons. But they turned it into, as always, an office space. And on top of the office space were a bunch of computers. Like, it's almost like you can oversee it. And I was sitting there doing your regular um, tele, uh, oh gosh, what is it called? Screening. When you're screening and writing out, it's not telestrating. Transcribing. Transcribing. Gotcha. Yes, right. So I was transcribing a bunch of interviews from junkets. And it was just myself. And no one else was there. And all I heard were a bunch of keyboards hitting, 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 hitting. And I kept on looking and nobody was there. So I... Like the keys were just getting mashed down. Yeah. It was wild. I did... I And I didn't really know anybody. That was the first week I was there. And I also didn't want to be labeled as the intern who heard a ghost. So I kept that very much to myself, but never sat in that area again. Have you ever, okay, not to get sidetracked on ghost stories, but have you ever dined at the Keg Mansion? I have, but I've heard it's haunted, but I've never experienced it. They've got a book of ghost stories and it's from the staff and it's from the patrons and they they keep running tally of it. And you know what's really funny? You talk about this red room and how, ha ha ha, they turned it into an office. There was, it was either a suicide or a murder. No, I think it was a suicide or a death that happened in one of the rooms because the mass, if you go and read up the history of the house, it was owned by the Massey family. There's a history of tragedy behind it, but they turned one of those rooms where there was a death into the woman's washroom. So apparently, apparently there's a lot of activity coming from the women's washroom because of that. I love that. A lot of activity. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's kind of like a double entendre. It's like, what kind of activity are you speaking yeah, about, Victor? What's it's like happening in there? <laughs> par- a lot of paranormal activity, apparently. Like they've told Ooh. us that there are there are staff members who have had encounters who basically will refuse to change in certain rooms and will not be the last ones in the building. They're like they leave together and they yeah. come in together. It's just like that, that's like- what they do. And I don't blame people. That is wild. Like I said, after that experience, that I didn't tell anybody because again, I didn't want to be seen as that like, oh, here comes that intern who saw a ghost energy. Um, and so I just never went into that area again. When your internship started to wind down, though, you moved into a new role at Bell Media, the parent corp. So that's one thing we haven't said is that eTalk was owned by Mel, Bell, by Bell Media. Yes. You moved from an intern on this show, this illustrious show, like Ben Mulrooney was one of the hosts, right? Have I got the right show? Oh, so on, on eTalk? 
on eTalk. Yes. And I actually, um, when you're an intern, this was many years ago. So I'm, I'm, I imagine it has changed again for folks. Like when I say many years ago, like 16, 17 years ago, I walked Tanya Kim's dog. Um, I, you know, you do get lunches. Ben Mulroney was always on junkets. So I was lucky enough to sit in his office. So I would, my seat at often when I was doing things, they'd be like, oh, just sit in Ben's office. And um, Ben Mulroney was lovely. Tanya Kim, the whole gang, very sweet to me. And even as, you know, you work through the career and I saw them later on in other areas, they would remember me. And it was just a really, really good experience. And I was only interned at eTalk for three, uh, for three weeks and then was able to get a full-time position elsewhere. Oh, wait, that was only a three-week internship? It was supposed to be three months, but I was lucky enough to have a job offer elsewhere. Okay. So that's how you moved into the clearance yeah. coordinator role. Okay. Really quickly though, there's one story that you got to share with us about your time at eTalk. You guys tried to get the Smurfs or the rights to the Smurfs for a little segment and what happened? Yes. Yeah, so actually that was at Pop Cultured with Elvira Kurt. So this is when I was a clearance coordinator um, at the Comedy Network. It was a very similar, I'm going to say like the soup, um, like it was a comedy news magazine show kind of, they were trying to do like the daily show energy, um, with a bunch of comedians, writers, and I was in a writer's room for the first time. I had never done legal before in my life, but what was a common thread is I was really good at the internet <laughs> and sleuthing and finding contacts and finding people and really great at communication and great outcomes. And a part of that the writer's room would come up with these fantastic ideas and all of the writers and comedians that worked on pop culture are now working for Conan, Jimmy Fallon, all in their own right. And they would come up with these amazing ideas and they would come to me as this 23 year old, 24 year old and saying, I have this idea for the Smurfs. It's a parody. We need to use their images. Can you please go find who owns the copyright so we can clip it or use it in the show? And it was a Belgium company, which is funny. I just actually went to Belgium three weeks ago and was in the museum. So I had some, a little bit of callback there. Uh, and a part of that was they trying to gain clearance um, of the usage of the Smurfs. And at that point, I couldn't find anyone on the internet. I had to do it over fax, which also is very funny. <laughs> um, the good old fax machine. And they declined, I will say, but had many um, approvals in other areas of the business. But that is where I learned some entrepreneurial spirit and energy and no is a no and just find other answers to get out of it. Um, because again, supporting other people and their ideas um, and seeing ideas flourish because of the work behind to get it in front of the right people was something I really valued. So you were trying to find the people that owned specific types of IP and then get their permission so you could use it in yes. clips in the show. 100%. And then I'd work with lawyers. And again, I didn't, as you can hear, it did not have a law degree. And so I would work with our lawyers in penning these new agreements um, via email, via fax. It was, and I was by myself trying to figure this all out. Uh, but, you know, it was wild. It was, um, it was interesting. Um, and it was also a daily show. So there also was disappointment where it was like, oh, Darcy didn't get it cleared. And I would, you know, this 24 year old being like, I'm so sorry, you know, but that also motivated me to try and get the yippee answer and get the green light on other areas and other permissions and clearances. So does that mean with speaking hypothetically right yeah. now with 
Mickey Mouse going into the public domain. Does that mean if you were doing your job right now, you wouldn't have to go to Disney or would there still be some restrictions? So there's still some restrictions. I believe on the Mickey Mouse, it's only that particular, I love that is I get like a clearance coordinator newsletter and I still know this. I believe the Mickey Mouse is the only, um, it's the original one, the Willie. Was it Steamboat Mickey? Yes, it is Steamboat Mickey. That's the only Mickey right now that is a free trademark. Nice. So everyone's going to be throwing around Steamboat Mickey. <laughs> You're going to see an <laughs> Nice. Okay. So you moved on to the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation and you were a clearance coordinator there as well. So how did the job differ from doing it at Bell Media versus the CBC? So Bell Media at that point too, in the comedy network, it was a, a daily show. So it was like, you know, all these ideas were coming in frantically, like go, 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 go. CBC, it was a show called Shooting Stars. And it was a small series. And I had up to, I think I had six months to clear this footage. And it was old CBC footage with like Michael J. Fox, Kim Cattrall. I think Eugene Levy was also in it. And so I had to clear the CBC original footage and get contact with their agent and their legal team to approve a clipping license for a new show that they were doing. And so I had more time to be more strategic, but... These were very, um, these were LA agents that I'd never spoken to, but on behalf of CBC and not to say there was more rigor, um, but there was a little bit more, um, more process in place at CBC because it was their owned and operated footage. You had the opportunity to rejoin Bell Media. So yes. what brought you back? Because this was freelance and freelance, as I discovered in going through freelance as well as full time, it's not for everybody. And I wanted to get the full-time gig. And after meeting a bunch of people at Pop Culture with Elvira Kurt at the Comedy Network, and then also with more people that I met along the way in the first year of being in television, there were rumors. It was, I'm sure it was like the secret that everybody knew that Bell Media was launching MTV Canada. And I wanted to be a part of that. That sounded exactly up my alley around pop culture, about relevancy, um, also, you know, a lot of the people that I knew that I worked at pop culture were working there and I wanted to be a part of the party. Um, there was a little bit of a FOMO energy that to be um, a part of this new launch at MTV Canada. So that's what brought me there. And they launched in March and there was a clearance coordinator that started there. And then she ended up going to law school. Um, it's so funny because she's actually our general legal counsel at Chorus and one of my really good friends. Um, and so we met back up with each other many years ago. Uh, and I took on the role as clearance coordinator at MTV Canada, and it was my dream job. From there, you started to grow within the company. So you moved into a role as a studio segment producer. But a lot of people listening to this would think, oh, you know, natural progression. She probably applied internally, got the job, or maybe there was some sort of path paved for you. But that wasn't the case. So what was that journey like? Yeah, so the clearance coordinator piece was a lot of administration, um, but what would happen, and I mean, all of us, as we're in trying to progress through our roles, everyone talks about stretching <laughs> lovingly of, you know, just join new brainstorms, join the pitch process, because it was a part of a daily show called MTV Live. And so I was a part of the brainstorms. I was a part of pitching, even though my, you know, the hat that I wore was clearances and legal. And I really wanted to get into production and create those ideas, not just execute um, the permissions and the legal portion. And at that point, I started interviewing elsewhere because I felt there was nowhere else and no jobs opening up. Um, and so I started interviewing elsewhere. I got a job offer, but I really wanted to stay at MTV. 
And I had to make a difficult decision. Um, at that point, I went to one of the executive producers and advocated for myself. I believe I had tears in my eyes when I did it um, because I wanted so badly to stay and was like, fingers crossed, she would find an opportunity for me. And she did. She understood my value and moved me into that studio segment producer role immediately. Um, and I declined the other offer. How did your duties change when you moved into a role as a studio producer? So it was a live daily show. And so a part of that is booking guests. And this was another major learning curve for me. I was now booking studio guests for a live show, plus producing the segments alongside the hosts. Um, that means manager outreach, pitching, researching, coming up with questions, ensuring that we have the right B-roll and I guess circle back to cleared footage. And it was um, stressful. It was, it took over my life, but I would not, um, I would not change a thing. Uh, it was such a eye-opening uh, live television. I thrive in that. Um, but also it's, it's also nice to have some tape segments as well. And you were working on the Hills. I was on MTV Live and working as a talent broker and studio segment producer. And then I actually really connected with the executive producer of the Hills After Show. His name um, is Garrett Wintrip. And him and I really, really connected. I really actually connected with Dan Levy and Jesse Cruikshank as well from like a social perspective. And I just love the Hills. And so when there was an opportunity to move over to the Hills After Show, um, I jumped and I was a studio segment producer, help writing, producing, um, also directing, um, which came with new challenges as well. Your next role is the most interesting one, though, I'd say, out of everything that we're going through today. Marketing producer. Now, yes. someone listening to this might think, marketing producer, and we kind of know what that is. But when you were describing it to me earlier, it kind of seemed like you were you were designed to play Switzerland between sales and marketing. Have I got that right? Yes, exactly. Um, there was a, um, a geographical gap as well. So MTV was at the Masonic Temple and our sales organization was down on 299 Queen Street. So the, not only was there a physical, but there was also um, church and state energy. If any has, one has worked in creative and sales, there's always the, you know, the creative types um, saying, we don't want to do the sales stuff. And meanwhile, the sales team being like, we need to integrate and we need to book things because we need revenue to keep these lights on. And so there needed to be somebody in between who understood both KPIs, found a, an overlap of collaboration and to develop content that not only was satisfied by our sales team and our clients, but also performed and laddered up to all of the IP at MTV, which included MTV News, MTV Live and the after show. It seems like your title should have been head of marketing empathy. Uh, you're not wrong. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're literally getting it from both ends about why they won't do this or why they want to do it this way. And I've worked in a role like that, not at the capacity that you have, but I've been in those meetings at the very least. And my God, sometimes people just fold their arms, they turn their head and no one's willing to budge. Even though I've always been on the sales side, you're gently reminding them that the revenue we bring in keeps everyone in this room employed. And that's the part two, and, and we're still doing it. Everyone still is, right? And you want to have the best outcome and the out, best outcome for everybody is for the creative to still create the best content that people want to see and engage with and then integrate. And that's why it's called brand partnerships because it is a partnership. Um, and you need somebody in between um, to help both areas understand each other. And I'm, I mean, if there's a Venn diagram 
of sales and creative, I'm the middle. It's funny that you highlighted brand partnerships because partnership being in the title seems to be something as of like the last 10 years, like sales jobs, they're no longer executives. So it's like, we're a client partner. We're exactly. there for you. Exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. A give and take energy. And so how did your duties change when you were promoted to a producer? So I, yeah, I got promoted to a producer and from there I went back to, um, the creative side of the business. I started to work on the development of new shows, focusing on Degrassi IP. At this point, um, we had sold Bell Media, sold the Masonic Temple. And so, um, those offices and so MTV actually moved down to 299. So we were now working so closely with the Much and MTV group coming together, uh, and, you know, like-minded similar audiences. And so I was focusing on the Degrassi IP, trying to create an after show element, working with Nickelodeon as well and producing more after show content. THA Media, your next yes. stop. Would you say that this is your first foray into the agency world? This THA Media actually was a, um, it's a company that was a um, production company. So they actually produced content for um, like similar to Insight Productions and proper television and produce content for Bell Media as well as Chorus Entertainment. So not agency yet, this was still creative. So is it kind of like when I'm watching a J.J. Abrams film and Bad Robot comes up? Yes. Gotcha, okay, so it's working with the bigger studios to, yes, exactly. to produce it, gotcha. Okay, so what was the People's Couch? Yes, so the People's Couch was a format from the UK it was British um, TV series called Gogglebox, where you see real people watching and discussing popular television shows and news from the past week. It was an interesting concept because the show acted as a second screen, much like the after show did, but fused with Twitter-like commentary. So it really met that after show feel that I loved, like the talk series, but also had this social element around pop culture and overlap of people chatting and talking through things. I liked those too. Do you think those have been overtaken by independent YouTube creators? Because there are a lot of creators out there that, let's say, for example, a trailer drops for a movie. It seems like within 12 hours, they have got a very sharp, tight, succinct review of that trailer, even if the films come out. I definitely agree. I mean, creators, and I love the creator space. Um, you're looking at video at scale, content at scale. Um, with our phones, with all the new technology, it's not just a TV producer who can do it. Uh, and same with the podcast space as well, right? Um, as we, we're in it right now, it's just discussions. And um, I think anyone to explore and have the capacity and have a different perspective, um, more the merrier. And you start to realize that at a time, there are more qualified people to do this, at least be on air talent than there were opportunities. Like going back to the way it was, you'd see someone on television covering this and you think, oh, they're really plugged in, but not realizing there are a ton of other people that could do this as well. So it's kind of nice that that certain platforms have allowed these people that otherwise wouldn't have had the opportunities. Like one one person I follow, two two channels I follow quite a bit, Emergency Awesome. And it, I'm convinced that this gentleman doesn't sleep because he pumps out <laughs> videos like crazy. It's like sometimes I'll get up in the morning and he's definitely based in the United States and I'll be hearing about a trailer for a comic book movie dropping, but he will already have a review of the trailer and like picking out little things that, you know, might be Easter eggs for the greater film and trying to theorize whether or not this person will make a cameo or not. And then another one is the critical drinker, a Scottish guy who likes to slam back hard liquor and then put together pretty brutally honest, but educated and experienced reviews on film and pop culture. I love that. And, you know, a part of it is democratizing, right? Creative yes. 
And I think that, you know, obviously the, the great things will rise um, and the bad content won't. Um, and you also think about that first creator you spoke about seeing trailers as soon as they launch, he's already got the content you know, they might be a part of the marketing um, execution and maybe a part of that studio actually sends them the content before it goes on YouTube, right? Like that could be a part of their earned approach. Uh, and I love to see that. I, I, again, I love seeing people do amazing things and create amazing things. And I will always applaud. Okay, so I got it wrong. TH Media wasn't your first foray into the agency world, but it looks like your next job was at UM Worldwide. Okay, so what brought you into the agency world and what was what was it like being their manager of content creation? Yeah, I discovered quite quickly because um, being a THA media, it was I was freelancing. I was a director and it just isn't for me. That gig life just doesn't match my need to build things and create things and be with the team consistently. You come in and out of jobs. Um, and I just am not built for that. That's not my purpose. Um, and, you know, you'd come in and out of a job and there's little mentorship. Drawing on my time at Bell, working so closely with brand partnerships, um, I identified I want to be a part of an award-winning programs and building them and work further upstream, not in execution, but rather in strategy. I met with a couple agency people learning about the need for content leaders in media agencies and the need for storytelling rather than dots and spots. And it intrigued me. Um, I applied and I jumped right into this new industry and knew no one. I was very lucky. Catherine Farah, who worked at UM as well, Shelly um, Smith, who's the president, um, took a chance on me for someone who'd never worked in a media agency before. Um, it was such a learning curve. And I spent the first 60 days just observing and being a sponge, taking notes feverishly, bought multiple advertising textbooks, which in hindsight is quite funny. Like it almost reads like a movie. I bought the like advertising for dummies. Very embarrassed to say that. Okay. Sorry. That series of books is fantastic. Yes. And I remember, you know, and like quietly taking notes to just learn the beautiful basics um, of marketing. And I was, I knew I needed a shift for me. I needed to grow. I needed to learn more. So I did enroll at U of T in a brand management course and Candidly, it was like the best decision I ever made. What did you know about the agency space or what experience did you have with, with that side of media and marketing prior to making the jump to UM? I was in a bunch of brainstorms when I was at um, Bell Media with the brand partnership team that agencies would come in and they would give us an RFP. And I had been on set with clients before um, in execution. And that was candidly, like that was it. I, I had been a part of building the programs, executing, but on the agency side of the business, I just spoke to people. They um, explained some things, you know, broadly, but I was jumping into a brand new industry at age 32 uh, and it was nerve wracking, but I was very excited. So what brought you to Mindshare and take us through what you were doing as the director of Content Plus, because this was an entire department, Content Plus. This wasn't like, hey, I'm just the manager over here. Right. Um, and that was a, another shift for me. I was at UM for, I believe, three years or th yeah, about three years. And I had worked on some really big brands at UM, including Johnson & Johnson, Indigo, McCain. It did some fantastic programs I'm so proud of. And a part of working at UM, um, you know, I was looking for growth and opportunity. Um, and at that time, a client I was working for was also moving agencies and they wanted me to join their new agency, Mindshare. 
So you were employee number one, weren't you, for this department? I was employee number one at Content Plus. So they were looking to invest in this new department and their positioning in the marketplace in a real way. Um, Devin McDonald and Karen Naylor, um, Karen Naylor was the president and Devin McDonald was the leader across the content side, had some great meetings and connections and obviously the client alongside that to grow with them. And it was just another step into more responsibility. This was an introduction of a PL, um, understanding the monetization of, um, of expertise uh, and really growing a department from nothing. Okay, shameless plug for Devin McDonald. I know he's moved on to Karen's O'Neill, but when he was the chief strategy officer of Mindshare, he was guest number 13. So go check out episode 13. Yeah, he's been on the pod. I love that. And same with Sarah Thompson. So Sarah Thompson was yep, Sarah Thompson as well. Yeah, she was my leader only for three months because I had left um, when she was there. But yes, Sarah Thompson also. Okay, so you are employee number one in this department. So my first question to that is, was this the first time that you were building something from the ground up? Because it seems like in all of your other jobs, there might have been some groundwork laid or at least a support group. This was the first time. Um, the marketing producer also was a brand new role at Bell Media as well. But this was the first time that a part of growing a new department or creating a new department alongside um, the senior executives was I underestimated the buy-in from the internal team members. This was the first time that I was like, oh, I can do this for clients. But I also had to get buy-in from the media planners, from the um, from all of those media directors who own those relationships. And they bought, they needed to buy into me and that I could produce amazing results with my partners like Bell Media, with Chorus Entertainment, um, with CBC, Blue Ant as well. Uh, and then I could be at the forefront in creating these award-winning programs um, for our clients. Okay, let's focus on this right now, because it sounds like when you got to the department, apart from you trying to build the department, you were doing a lot of personal internal selling of yourself and your credentials. Yes, and that was intimidating. Uh, I don't come by it naturally. Um, and so, again, as you can see kind of the forefront, it's always like to see other people in the forefront and then be creating um, moments for other people to be successful and me being the producer of that. So I did have to step outside of my comfort zone and be at the um, be at the forefront of a lot of new business pitches um, and selling myself not only to the clients and my expertise, but also for the internal team members. And a part of that was the Unilever team, the Dyson team, obviously I, I, Indigo I was already working with, um, but did some amazing work for the year and a bit I was at Mindshare. It seems like there were probably moments in this job where I, I'd say early on where it's kind of like, you weren't really doing too, too much because you were still trying to earn the trust of people. So there was a lot of that internal selling, but maybe there was a certain point where the floodgates opened. Maybe you got your first chance to work on an RFP and then I can kind of see your inbox filling up over the days going, oh my God, I had spent, I was going to budget the next week to work on this. And now all of a sudden, all of the work I've done internally means now I've got seven to 10 RFPs and I'm still just a department of one. Did you have yeah. any moments like that where it just kind of came down in a rush? Yes, that was Unilever. <laughs> okay. To be honest, that was exactly at the buy-in of of Unilever. And that was also my opportunity because I had worked on Johnson & Johnson from a CPG perspective. And so I had that experience in um, lifestyle uh, and I got the opportunity with Unilever. So we worked on, I worked on Dove campaigns. I worked on Basel because Basel at that point was also a part of the Unilever family. And so that's exactly what happened. And then more opportunities started coming. And then, you know, as you do, you get popular and excited and you're making money for the organization, but also things get bottlenecked. So um, that was also around part of the growth um, of Content Plus and when we hired um, additional people. Okay. So let's bring this full circle. 
what brought you to Chorus and Soda? Because correct me if I'm wrong, I think Soda launched with you. The first time I at least had heard of Soda was when a press release went out and it had your name attached to it. Yes. So it was about eight months prior to that. They did, I'm going to use it as soft launch in the lovely marketing speak. Um, Dervla Kelly, I'm sure many people have spoken about her. She um, launched this Soda, which is a social digital agency internally at Chorus. But this was the first time of speaking about it outwardly with the new hire. So for me, I was missing the creativity side of building things that weren't just six to eight week campaigns. Um, And at that time, Chorus had just had a large reorg that centered their brands and social and understood the dedication it needed to build audience and engagement. Um, Also, the VP of Kin Community Canada, Ashley Risk, at the time, her and I had worked on so many great programs when I was both at Mindshare and UM, reached out to me to see if I was interested in learning about this new role um, as it wasn't posted yet because I'd come to mind given my expertise in media, production, and social. Um, I had my meeting with Dervla Kelly, who shared her vision for the new department, uh, and immediately I was hooked. What does Soda look like now versus, say, day number one? Day number one, it was when I started, there were 28 people, and it was operation highly focused on branded content and also on growing our own and operated brands from an audience perspective and marketing our shows. And the first year we started a new agency direct to client. We added General Mills from an earned organic perspective in social and then added new clients as we went. And now I'm proud to say the team is now 80 plus people um, across the organization. And we work, we have a talent group, we have a PR group, a creative group, social group. um, And I am just so proud of the work that this team has created and have met so many great people and mentored a great, a lot of people and learned a lot from other people as well. Darcy, this has been a great chat. Are you ready for rapid fire questions? I'm ready. Okay. The campaign you are most proud of. It was a Twitter original fueled by soda. It's called hashtag power up. Um, It was the winner of Digiday Content Awards for Best New Product and Launch Campaign with Samsung. Um, And a shout out to Michael Palombo from the Twitter family. Um, It was a fantastic campaign. Your favorite movie? My favorite movie? um, I know that it's uh, January, February, but Muppets Christmas Carol is the perfect movie. And Clueless, of course. Aren't the Muppets great? Like, they do a great job of subtly weaving in adult humor. It is the Muppets IP is one of my favorite things. It gives me so much joy. Um, And I follow multiple, and I mean, the algorithm also has been chasing me. Um, But all those old Muppet baby McDonald's toys, all those Muppet glasses, I want to go and purchase them all again. There's one scene from the Muppet Christmas Carol that sticks with me. And it's when Rizzo the Rat and everyone working for, oh God, Ebenezer Scrooge are asking for, another piece of coal and Michael Caine's Ebenezer Scrooge says, how would they feel if they were certainly all unemployed? And then it cuts to them all in Hawaiian gear, yelling heat wave, and then singing some sort of tropical song. I love that you're saying this because my face right now, that's my favorite gif. So that is an always on with both um, one of like my friendship group and my husband. We always joke about that. If Hollywood were to make a movie based on your life story, who would you want to play you? 
I would love Cameron Diaz energy from the holiday or Jennifer Coolidge, who's a complete vibe. So my follow up to that, if Hollywood were to make a movie based on your life story, what would you call it? Peaks and valleys. I usually ask people what their favorite book is, but you'd like me to ask you who your favorite social follow is. So who is your favorite person, personality or brand to follow on social media? My, I have a host of, I mean, I work in social media and they all service different purposes, but the one that has the most shareability right now is agency problems. (laughs) Um, that, That honestly is one of my favorite follows. I love joy. I love laughing and I love sharing content with people that we both giggle about. And that is an always on giggle. Your favorite song. I have two. I have Lauren Hill, Duop, and I also have Miley Cyrus, Party in the USA. The best advice you have ever received? Uh, it was from my executive producer at MTV, Alex Sapinka. Um, I had just taken on the new role as studio segment producer for the live show, and it was a big job. I'm a high performer and wanted everything perfect, and candidly, I'm sure it showed. Um, I care so much about everything I do, and I'm sure I was freaking out. And he pulled me aside and shared with care and support. It wasn't reckless, um, but he said, you know, we're not saving lives. It's just television. Um, I needed that in that moment to just lighten up and have fun. And that is something that I share with all of the team that I work with all the time. We work in social media. It is so easy to get stressed out and burnt out because you're chasing a follow, you're chasing a like, and you're just chasing for the affirmation. Um, And it's nice to just stop and pause and remind everyone we are not saving lives. Or someone bored in their parents' basement puts a comment up that, you know, you really didn't need for that campaign. Exactly. And that's a part of even being a community manager, right? And all of those different pieces. Um, And it's really hard when you're working on a brand always on, it becomes kind of you and a part of you. Um, And it's, you know, the mental health and people who work in social media, we don't talk about it enough. Um, but it's something that um, as leaders in social media, we should always on have that conversation. My signature closing question, if you weren't in media, what would you be doing and why? Showrunner for a fashion brand. Um, at times, and I shared earlier around missing live television, there is a high that comes out of that. Um, and it's such a rush. And mixing my love and awe for creative and making creative people look amazing matched with the production of a live show would just be magical. Darcy, this has been a fantastic chat. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That's it for today's show. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca, your favorite podcast platform, or youtube.com slash at mediapeoplepodcast. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Vic Genova.